I'm R4 Dennison. I'm a adjunct professor at University of Minnesota, Professor Emeritus uh, UC Davis, and I have background in both agriculture and a bit in evolutionary biology. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. I'd like to start the show today by telling you a story about Charles Darwin. Oh, awesome. Darwin kind of rocks. Yes, he does. So this is in Darwin's own words. One day, on tearing off some old bark, I saw two rare beetles and seized one in each hand. Then I saw a third and new kind, which I could not bear to lose. So I popped the one which I held in my right hand into my mouth. Alas... It ejected some intensely acrid fluid which burnt my tongue so that I was forced to spit the beetle out, which was lost, as was the third one. Whoa. Darwin, <laughs> that dude loved beetles. Yeah, he sure did. But what I love about this story is that it illustrates that you need to be careful when messing around with nature. It's difficult to predict what might happen. And we humans really like to mess around with nature, though, don't we? We sure do. Look at agriculture. It has completely changed the surface of our planet and has allowed the human population to soar into the billions. Because of this, agriculture faces some incredible challenges these days. To discuss these challenges and what we might be able to do about them, we're joined today by Professor R. Ford Dennison, who recently wrote a book called Darwinian Agriculture, How Understanding Evolution Can Improve Agriculture. Dr. Dennison, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. One of the biggest problems with agriculture today is that we only have so much land to use for growing food. We asked Dr. Dennison how extensive this problem is. We're using about uh, 35% of land area for agriculture, and a lot of the land that's not being used for agriculture is deserts or Antarctica or uh, you know very steep slopes. Um, so there isn't there isn't a whole lot of land that would be suitable for agriculture that's not already being used. Uh, certainly there, you know, it's a possibility of, of clearing more of the Amazon and uh, farming there, and that's happening to some extent, but uh, generally we think that's something we'd like to avoid because the Amazon is doing all sorts of great things in terms of absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and preserving biodiversity and so on. And similarly, we could drain some additional wetlands uh, for agriculture, and that is happening. But again, that's something we would rather not have happen because wetlands provide all sorts of benefits, um, supporting fish populations and uh, removing pollutants from water and so on and so on, preserving biodiversity. So that argues that we don't really want to allocate additional land to agriculture, and yet all of our projections suggest that there's going to be an increased demand for agricultural products, both for uh, direct food, for direct human consumption, because human population is growing faster than crop production is growing. And in addition to that, a larger fraction of the food that we produce is being turned into other things. For example, it's being fed to animals to produce meat, and it takes uh, several times as much grain, say, say several kilograms of, 
of grain to produce a kilogram of of meat. So as people in China and other countries become wealthier and increase the uh, meat in their diet, um, that's going to be increasing demand for for grain or for the uh, forages like hay. But land isn't the only thing that is a finite resource. We also have a limited supply of water, which is a necessary ingredient for growing food. Dr. Dennison explained to us the complicated relationship between agriculture, water, and the health of our planet. Of the uh, water that that humans remove, uh, you know, pump from underground sources or pump out of rivers and uh, use for various human purposes, agriculture is a dominant use of that. I, I think the figure in my book is maybe 80%, but I, I don't remember. Um, so that's one of the ways that we've increased crop production is through irrigation. But uh, like the potential of increasing crop production by increasing land area, the potential for increasing it by increasing water use for irrigation is also quite limited. And even in places where we're irrigating today, there are various issues such as uh, water being removed from rivers to the extent that it's harmful to fish, uh, underground water uh, reserves that are being depleted faster than they can be uh, replaced by water percolating down from above. That has a couple of implications. First, that means that water is going to be used up in the same sense that you know oil or uh, phosphorus ores for fertilizer are going to be used up. But also, the water in underground sources essentially strengthens the soil against uh, subsidence, where the where the level of the soil drops. And so, if you're pulling water from an under underground source that uh, goes in under a levee, for example, you may have uh, some subsidence of the soil and the levee going down and therefore increased risks of, of floods. So all in all, we need more food, but we can't get it by increasing land use or by increasing water use. It's a scary thought that the amount of land and water we have may not be able to sustain the agricultural growth required to feed our growing population. It's terrifying. One solution certain scientists have proposed is to make plants more drought-resistant so that they require less water in order to survive. Dr. Dennison explained the concept of drought resistance to us. So people talk about drought tolerance, and strictly speaking, that means the ability of a, a plant, a crop plant, say, to survive a drought and not die. Mm -hmm. But, of course, in agriculture, we need we need more than just dying. You know, we need something to actually grow and produce, you know, grain or cabbages or whatever it is we're, we're trying to grow. And so uh, drought tolerance alone, uh, if you have some environment where droughts are relatively rare, you know, it doesn't rain for two weeks, and then after that there's going to be plenty of rain, then developing crops that can just, you know, hold on during that period, uh, then they could start growing again once the, once the rain uh, arrives. So drought tolerance means a plant can more easily withstand a drought, but it doesn't mean that it is producing as much food. Right. Dr. Dennison gave us an example of a species of corn that is 
drought tolerant and explained how it produces less corn when it is withstanding low water conditions. And so there are examples, uh, corn for example, some varieties of corn, when they run low on water, they'll kind of curl their leaves up in a, in a, in a spiral. And that means that they don't uh, heat up as much from the sun and therefore they don't use as much water. So that allows them to hang on during a period without water. But because they've got their leaves folded up, they're also not photosynthesizing, so they're not growing any. And so um, I, I think drought tolerance per se has, you know, it has some value, but people sort of have this idea that, oh, if we could only make them drought tolerant, then we could grow lots of food in places that don't have very much water. And that's completely wrong. To, to grow food, actually grow food with less water, what we need is water use efficiency, that is producing more grain or fruit or whatever it is with a given amount of, of water. And there's some uh, potential there, but it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a difficult, difficult uh, thing to achieve. So to make sure everyone caught that, Dr. Dennison is pointing out here that there's a big difference between drought tolerance and water use efficiency. Yes, and he cautions against looking at drought tolerance as an answer to our agricultural dilemmas. This introduces the concept of trade-offs. If you enhance a plant's ability to withstand drought, you might cause a new problem. Researchers need to be really careful to understand these types of trade-offs when attempting to improve plants for agriculture. Dr. Dennison illustrated this with an example from the scientific literature. Now, there was a, a particular paper that I uh, criticized in the, in the book where there was this, you know, high-profile paper, oh, we've got this drought-tolerant corn, and isn't this wonderful? And so uh, I actually critiqued that in earlier papers as well as in the book. I said, well, what they did was uh, increased the expression of an existing gene in corn. This is a gene that turns on some other genes that are involved in, in drought tolerance. And so the question I asked was, well, you know, an increase in the expression of an existing gene, this is the sort of thing that happens all the time through mutation. I mean, I've actually got calculations in the book that, you know, if you just have uh, a couple of square miles, there's a really good chance that somewhere, you know, if you have a couple square miles of corn, say, there's a really good chance that at least one of the, uh, the many mutants that are found in, in any, you know, area that size, uh, at least one or two of them are going to have increased expression of that gene. So over the millions of years of evolution, the uh, corn plants and the, and the wild ancestors of corn plants, Teosinti and going back you know, before that, mutants that had increased expression of that gene must have arisen repeatedly and competed against the uh, parental you know, genotype that had lower expression of that gene. And we know which one won. You know, the ones that won are the ones that have the current level of expression, not the ones that have a higher level of expression. So then you have to ask yourself, well, why is it? I mean, here's this gene that apparently, you know, has some benefits under drought, and yet uh, plants with similar 
um, traits, we can be confident have arisen repeatedly over the course of evolution, and they lost in competition to plants that didn't have that trait. So why would that be? Well, it must be that there's some kind of trade-off. Perhaps the trade-off is that if you have higher expression of that gene, you do better under drought, but you do worse if there's plenty of water. Hmm. Now, that's something that I wouldn't have published that paper without seeing uh, comprehensive data on how those plants do under non-drought conditions. Hmm. But they just had, you know, a few, oh, well, you know, no, no real details uh, on that. So there's a lot of trade-offs that you could imagine. If you boost the expression of this drought-tolerant gene, you might be de- decreasing crop yields in time of plenty, or you might be making that plant more susceptible to disease. Right. You might think that you're making the plant more competitive, but natural selection knew what it was doing when it set the expression of that gene at its natural level. Messing around with gene expression without understanding these trade-offs is a dangerous game, much like shoving an unknown beetle into your mouth. (laughs) Natural selection is all about competition, which involves the survival of the fittest individual. But there are times when it is actually beneficial, in terms of agriculture, for farmers to make plants less competitive. Dr. Dennison explained how this is the case with dwarf wheat and dwarf rice. You know, the Green Revolution doubled or so crop yields of wheat and rice, and the main way that they did that was by developing uh, rice and wheat that had shorter stems. And so rather than wasting a lot of of, uh, energy trying to get above their neighbors, uh, they put that energy into grain, and that gives us higher grain yield. But if you take one of those high-yielding rice varieties and let it compete against the older, lower-yielding rice varieties, the older varieties uh, essentially, you know, outcompete and eliminate the higher yielding variety in just three years of, of competition. You go from fifty fifty to zero. Yeah, you. So that's a that's a well known example. But I argue in the book that there were many other situations where natural selection, where there's a trade off between individual competitiveness against of plants against their neighbors and the collective performance of plant communities, either in terms of grain yield or in terms of the efficiency with which we use scarce resources like water. So natural selection is gone for individual competitiveness, but what we can do, as was done in the case of the dwarf wheat and the dwarf rice, what we can do is select for uh, more cooperative plants, you know, plants that, that have traits that benefit overall uh, community productivity and efficiency rather than just outcompeting their their neighbors. This illustrates that a farmer can optimize the competitive of a community of plants to generate higher crop yields, whereas natural selection only maximizes the competitiveness of individual plants. Plants working together to give us more food. That kind of makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about trade-offs in the natural world. For example, do you use your energy to fix nitrogen or to reproduce? Do you become drought-tolerant or do you photosynthesize like crazy? Do you optimize the individual, like natural selection, or do you optimize the productivity of the community, like a farmer with dwarf wheat? And there are so many other trade-offs to consider as well, like social, political, and economic trade-offs. One example is with organic versus non-organic farming. 
most of us tend to think that organic is better. Right. And in a lot of ways it is. But as a Lundberg family, who grow a large portion of the organic rice sold in the United States, discovered about 10 years ago, it's not always that simple. The situation 10 years ago for the Lundbergs was that they got twice the price for organic rice. And so if they could get half the yield, then they would make the same amount of money uh, growing organically. And they said that they would prefer to do that because of the possible health risks and ecological risks of pesticides. But at least at the time, they weren't able to consistently get half the yield. What they found is that when they first switched uh, land from conventional rice to organic rice production, that things were fine because there weren't very many weed seeds in the soil uh, because of the pesticides they've been, the herbicides they've been using. But various weeds would gradually build up as they went for year after year without using herbicides. Weeds would build up and they were very difficult to control. And at the time, you know, the situation was that they didn't really have a solution. They were, they're, they're very creative people. So they were trying all sorts of things where they would, you know, plant the rice and then rather than irrigating the whole field, they would apply water just where the row of the rice was so it would get a head start over the weeds. And so it's, it's, you know, I don't know. It's possible that they've solved this problem by now. So one of the things you have to ask, if you're using more land to grow food organically, what does this mean on a global scale? If you don't use fertilizers and pesticides, it's often hard to get the same yield, and therefore it takes more land. And so the organic uh, farms are not adding any pesticides to the environment, which is great. But if they take more land to produce the same amount of food, then that has environmental consequences. Now, I'm not saying that organic farmers are themselves draining, swamp, draining wetlands uh, to get that additional land or cutting down forests to get that additional land. But, you know, food is an international commodity. So if there's less food produced in one country, uh, somebody else is, gonna, is going to step into the gap, and that may mean that... Uh, you know, the, the indirect effects of not using fertilizer in California, say, might be somebody cutting down additional rainforest in Brazil to grow the uh, crops that are not being grown because of the lower, you know, to, to, to replace the missing grain um, that's not being supplied because of not using fertilizer. To complicate matters even more, there is a divide between the back-to-nature agriculturalists who aim to improve crop yields through natural methods and the biotechnologists who genetically modify plants. We asked Dr. Dennison to describe how biotechnology is being used today in agriculture. Well, there are really two, um, you know, there are millions and millions of acres uh, of biotech crops being grown, uh, largely corn and soybean, in the United States. And, you know, so... You know, when my friend uh, Robert Norris, who's been a, a critic of um, some aspects of biotechnology and had some research plots to uh, see whether there were some risks to a new biotech crop, when those plots were destroyed by anti-biotech vandals, um, that, of course, kept him from getting those results. But I, I, I suggested he should have put a little sign by his plots pointing to the Midwest, you know, 50 million acres of biotech crops this way. <laughs> um, but 
but what those those 50 million or so acres uh, mostly are is either uh, crops that are resistant to a glyphosate herbicide, uh, which is sold under the trade name of Roundup, among other among other names. Um, so that means that a crop that has that resistance, you can spray it with glyphosate, and it will kill any weeds that are susceptible to glyphosate, but not till the, kill the crop. So that's that's you know half or so of the the biotech acres, and then the other half uh, is crops that are insect resistant, insect resistant because they make a uh, uh, protein derived from bacteria which is toxic to certain insect pests. So those are the, those are the big ones. Um, there are things like uh, virus resistant uh, papaya in, um, in Hawaii, you know, not many, not many acres, but, uh, you know, it essentially saved the papaya industry there and I think that doesn't have a lot of the, the concerns that I have about some of these other some of these other uses. But yeah, those are the big two. Mm-hmm. And then the things that they keep talking about is well, we're going to make you know crops that that yield more with less water, or uh, you know are are you know can grow in very cold areas or so on. And those are the things that I'm or, or you know. Can can have high yield without uh, fertilizer. Those are the things I'm much more skeptical about. Both the biotechnological and the back to nature approaches have the potential to be very beneficial. Unfortunately, these two sides don't always see eye to eye. Oh, I would say they're hostile to each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you know one of the points I try to make in the book is that I think uh, there is some positive potential for biotechnology. And there's a lot of potential for getting ideas from nature that we can use to improve agriculture. So those are those are the sort of those two two groups that are at odds with each other. And what I you know the theme of the book is that both of those groups tend to ignore evolutionary trade-offs. And if they would pay more attention to evolutionary trade-offs, both of them would make more progress in making uh, improvements to both the productivity and the sustainability of agriculture. All these different factions seem to have such different views on how to optimize agriculture. We asked Dr. Dennison if it was possible to balance the different goals of researchers, consumers, farmers, and politicians. I don't have a really good answer for how to balance these uh, conflicting goals. I mean, I think one of the the big uh, reasons that I wrote the book is that people tend to oversimplify these issues. And on the one hand, people think that if everyone switched to organic farming, that all of our problems would be solved. And on the other hand, you know, people in the biotech industry, you know, claim that if if only we would stop, you know, uh, regulating biotechnology, that they could solve all these problems. And I think both of those are, are real oversimplifications. So, you know, my hope is that by bringing up the some of the nuances and complexities of these issues, that this will lead to a, a higher level uh, of discussion. And then we as, as individuals and as society will decide what kind of trade-offs are willing to accept, you know, how we balance these different goals. I really like that answer. It makes it clear that there is no simple, obvious answer for how to do this. Right. Clearly the answer is not just to shove all the beetles in your mouth at once. 
Dr. Dennison believes, actually, that we can learn a lot from natural selection and that we can move forward with the lessons nature has taught us. In his book, he proposes three core principles of, for Darwinian agriculture. The, the three principles that I propose are, first, that natural selection is unlikely to have missed simple trade-off-free improvements. Now, by simple, I mean the kinds of uh, cha genetic changes that arise uh, all the time or, you know, very often through mutation, and that would include things like uh, increasing the expression of any of the existing genes that plants already have. That's simple and natural. So, you know, mutations with higher expression of any given gene happen all the time. Or uh, something that people suggested as well, we have these defenses against insects, say, which are only turned on when the insects are present. Wouldn't it be cool using biotechnology to turn them on all the time? And again, I suggest, you know, natural selection tried that. It didn't work. So um, the question then is, given that these ideas of increasing the expression of gene X or of turning on gene X all the time, given that, that natural selection uh, rejected that option, what makes you think that it's a good idea? Now, it might be. It might be that natural selection rejected it for reasons that don't apply to modern agriculture, but we need, at least need to ask that question. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, these, these relatively simple things that biotech companies are, are proposing, many of them are things that natural selection already tried and, and, uh, and rejected. So basically, if nature already tried it and decided it didn't work, then we should be careful how much of our time we want to spend on that. Right, unless we can convince ourselves that it's something that would be of benefit in an agricultural, but not necessarily a wild environment. Like the dwarf rice. Exactly, which brings us to his second core principle of Darwinian agriculture. Second principle is that uh, when we're looking for ideas that have been tested by nature, there's two kinds of testing. One is, has something persisted for thousands of years? Well, if it's persisted for thousands of years, like some uh, rainforest, say, that's been around for thousands of years, then we know it's sustainable, if we define sustainable as able to persist for thousands of years. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no room for improvement. And so what I say is that uh, things that have been tested <clears throat> by competition against alternatives have been improved more than things that have just sort of hung out and not had to compete. So what has, had, what has been tested by competition? Well, let's, let's take wild rice, since I'm in Minnesota. Let's take wild rice as an example. If you um, look at wild rice, it grows in the edges of lakes, so it's growing under, you know, its roots are underwater, and it has all sorts of adaptations to growing underwater, um, to having its roots continuously underwater, things like, um, being able to transport oxygen down to the roots, for example, through a, through a hollow stem. Well, we know if we're thinking about uh, flooding improving flooding tolerance in cultivated rice, you know, we can look at that and say, well, uh, wild rice plants that had these flooding tolerant traits, we know 
but they competed against alternatives that had different trades over and over and over again, you know, since the glaciers, so, you know, a few thousand years anyway. Uh, they competed over and over again, and what we've got is what won. So these are good ideas that we might want to copy in cultivated rice. On the other hand, we notice that wild rice grows naturally as a monoculture. You see wild rice growing and almost no other plants are growing along with it. So does that mean that if we're designing uh, a farm and deciding whether to use mixtures of crops or to grow crops uh, in monoculture, you know, single, single species stands, should we say, well, that's how it is in nature, let's copy it? Well, maybe not, because unlike plants competing against plants, lakes with wild rice monocultures have not competed against lakes with more diverse plant communities. Lakes don't compete against lakes. Hmm. So we can't just look at it and say, oh, this is the way in nature it's been tested. We should adopt. Well, okay. It's been tested by persistence. So we know it's sustainable at least. But it hasn't been tested by competition against alternatives that might have, for example, uh, mixtures of plants every year, or by alternatives that would be more like crop rotation that we see in agriculture, where you grow a single uh, species of crop, but then next year you grow a different species of crop. This wild rice um, continuous monoculture hasn't been tested against alternatives like that. So those alternatives might be worth exploring. So what Dr. Dennison is getting at is that we can improve the way we use crop diversity on landscapes. For example, we need to find out how much land to allocate to specific plant species, how best to combine plant species into communities, and how best to rotate crops. Because these types of questions have not been optimized in nature, since natural selection optimizes the individual plant and not the overall community of various plant species, these are great avenues to explore for improving agriculture. Dr. Dennison also emphasized that we should be looking at traits that have already been tested competitively in the wild. One of the examples he gave us involves my favorite vegetable, the humble potato. Let's say wild potatoes, for example. They have these hairs that are hollow and contain a chemical. And when an insect brushes against that hair, the hair breaks open and releases that chemical. Well, there we know that wild potatoes with that trait competed against wild potatoes that didn't have that trait. So it must be doing something useful in contrast to, you know, maybe the forest has three layers and maybe that's useful or maybe it's not. We know that hair is doing something useful. So then the question is, okay, is it useful in agriculture or is it just something that's useful in the wild? Or we can then do, do some research and we find out that the chemical that that hair is releasing is so similar to the chemical that aphids use to warn each other when they're under attack, hmm. that when the aphids smell that chemical, they flee. So here they touch the they touch the potato, they break the hair, they go, oh my God, there's you know some big predator, I've got to get out of here, and they fly <laughs> away and leave the potato alone. So those are the kinds of things that we should be looking for nature, uh, things that have been tested competitively. I love that story. I love potatoes. It seems we have a lot to learn from nature, assuming we can understand how it works. Yes, and there is no single right answer to this dilemma. This brings us to Dr. Jennison's third principle. Bet hedging. 
we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. So I'm promoting, you know, some some new ideas. But even the ideas that I'm promoting, it would be a mistake to put all of our effort into pursuing, you know, the approaches that I suggest. We need a diversity. You know, we need um, farms with and without animals. We need conventional and organic farms. We need, um, you know, various approaches to biotechnology. And if we have, um, you know, enough diversity there, then there's a good chance that, uh will be able to face the various challenges that, that agriculture is going to be facing. And and those challenges, as I suggest in, in Chapter 2, are much more serious than I think most people recognize. We'll be able to face those challenges as they arise. That, that seems like a fairly optimistic note to end on. Yes, and we wish Dr. Dennison all the best with his book, and we sincerely hope that the agricultural industry, as well as the sources that fund agricultural research, Such take note. Dr. Dennison's. Yes. <laughs> That's it for the show today. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by googling the Grok Science Show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. Thanks for listening, and please do tweet or post to us on Facebook or our website. We'd love to hear from you. For the Grok Science Radio Show and Forrest Golden, Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, I'm Joanna Rowell. Mm-hmm.